You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello. Welcome to the Longhorn Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Limmer. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. How you doing? (laughs) Upbeat. Peppy. Yeah. Uh, This week's episode, I'm not going to ask who Max talked to because I was there. We went to Pittsburgh. Uh, We have been uh, sponsored uh, for a while by their writing program at University of Pittsburgh, and we went down there for our second annual live podcast there. Uh, Max, who did you talk to? You know, you just said you weren't going to ask me. Will S. Hilton. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Will Hilton, he writes uh, for the New York Times Magazine, wrote for GQ and Esquire for a long time. Uh, he's a good guy. Evan, what did you do while we were gone? I don't even remember when did this you, happened. Did you, <laughs> did you tape some episodes of your solo show? I didn't even notice you were gone. Rat That's riffs. The truth. <laughs> um, we got a great sponsor this week, The Foghorn. A new short fiction magazine for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch. They put up four stories a month, 12 issues a year, uh, featuring exciting Hollywood writers and new voices. You can check them out at thefoghornmagazine.com. We got a second sponsor. You guys, it's Tiny Letter. From the good people at uh, MailChimp, it is a easy, simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. There are all kinds of tiny letters out there that you should subscribe to. Subscribe to all of them. Here's Max with Will S. Hilton. Hey, Will Hilton. Hey. How you doing, man? I'm all right. It's, uh, it's good to be with you in Pittsburgh. Yeah, love it's, it here. It's really, uh, it's really nice to be in Pittsburgh. This is our second live podcast. And I love the, the first one with Joel. Yeah, yeah, that one was, uh, that one was really fun. That guy's, a, that guy's an emotionally open guy. Yeah. It was like uh, I, I left and I knew myself better after that conversation. <laughs> um, well, we've got a lot to talk about, Will. I'm really excited uh, uh, to be talking to you. Um, You've been writing for magazines for a long time, and there are a lot of stories that are, are in my like all-time favorites, and I want to talk about those. Um, but we should probably start with your book. You wrote a book. Yeah, I've been. Uh, I wrote the book came out almost exactly two months ago, and I've sort of spent the last couple of months hawking my wares <laughs> everywhere. One of the things that was so exciting to me about doing this is getting a chance to talk about long form, which is really the medium that I've venerated all my life. Um, and the book is this sort of outlier in my in my work to date. I did, I did really fall in love with the form of, of writing a nonfiction book, which I did not expect to do. I saw it as, 
as something I had to write because that was a story I wanted to tell and it was the only way to tell it. Yeah, that was part of what I was, I mean, you've done all of these fantastic stories, many of which feel like they could have been books. And I guess I'm, I'm interested in why this was the one that you decided to sort of pour years of your life into. But maybe before we get into that question, you should just give a sort of brief synopsis of, of, the, of the book. So the, the book is called Vanished, and it's, it's the, the, the subhead, which should be stricken from the record as quickly as possible, is the search for the missing men of World War II. And the book is about no such thing. Um, uh, it, uh, the book is actually about the search for a specific World War II airplane with uh, 11 uh, airmen on board um, which, which disappeared from the sky in the middle of a bombing run over a tiny little patch of islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, which had been occupied by the Japanese and which the Americans needed or thought they needed in order to, uh, to, to defeat Japan in the war. And, um, and so during this bomb run, the plane was shot out of the sky. A bunch of parachutes were seen um, popping off the plane um, as it's corkscrewed out of, uh, of flight. Um, but it was never clear exactly where the fuselage or the plane landed, how many men were aboard, how many men survived, and what might have happened to them. And over time, over a period of about 60 years, um, a lot of people became interested in finding out. Sort of the more more clear it became that the mission reports from that day were wrong, that the plane wasn't where it was believed to be, um, and that that the men, that the families of, of some of the men um, believed that they had actually come home and, and, and were hiding, um, the, more, the more intense the search became to find out whether or not that was true. And a big part of the book is, is not just about the mission, but about the families today and uh, the sort of effect that having a family member go missing has on a family sort of long term, not, not just short term. What was it about this story that, that hooked you in a way that you thought, okay, this is something that um, I'm not going to do for a magazine. This is something that I need a couple hundred thousand words for, not ten. What, what, what was the, what was the sort of tipping thing there? That was it. It was. I, I, I went originally to do this as a magazine piece, and uh, and as I was finishing up the magazine piece, one of the last people I interviewed was a, a football coach out in Texas who, uh, whose father had been on the plane, and this he's this big powerful guy, as you would imagine a West Texas football coach to be. And he's also powerful sort of spiritually, if, if you will, um, because he's, he's that sort of Coach Taylor type of figure in the lives of so many young boys who learn from him about, you know, integrity and on and off the field, sort of courage, different kinds of courage. Um, and, and so, you know, he presents this very put-together and very impressive, f- for, formidable figure, um, and yet it only took a couple of seconds of talking with him before he, he broke down completely, um, talking about what it has meant for him to grow up, always wondering whether his father uh, lived or died, and if he lived, whether the rumors in his family uh, were true, um, those rumors being that, that his father had used the crash as an opportunity to abandon his mother and him. And, uh, and so becoming aware of that um, incredible, fraught, emotional problem that I'd never considered before, at the end of the magazine piece, it was, it was enormously unsatisfying. Um, and I was able to write some of that into the piece, but not very much. Um, and at that time, it was still not clear uh, whether any of those rumors were true, uh, what, what had happened to his father. Um, and, and, and so I found myself just continuing to report after the story was put to bed um, and just kind of still very interested in, in keeping in touch with him and in keeping in touch with the search team that was out there 
uh, in the islands doing um, underwater recovery work to try to see if they could find any of this guy's bones. Um, and then it was only after a few months of this sort of, um, you know, postpartum state where the story was gone, but I was still reporting it, that I realized I was kind of already working on a book. Right, right. You're sort of, uh, you were hooked from there. I, I um, a big part of the book, sort of, uh, the sort of theme of the book is that um, these are people, these families are largely forgotten. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, an issue that's so far in the margins that people don't really know about it. And even if you do, it's really hard to understand where they're at. And, and so I guess I wonder, as you went further with the book, you finished the book, you, you spent a year writing it, you know, you finally put out, you've been on all these shows talking about it and all these best of lists and all these things. Have you gotten some closure on the story? I wish I could say I had. I, I found myself... Uh, Right before the, the book's release, we were going to do an excerpt of the book in the, in the New York Times Magazine. And this is, a, um, this is a real nice thing if you're putting a book out to be able to do an excerpt in a big magazine like that. And so we were starting to call like what's going to be, what parts of the book are going to be in the excerpt. And then I found out from a guy that I knew from reporting on the book about this crazy recovery operation taking place on a totally different set of islands in the Pacific and all the, the largest cache of American MIAs probably ever recovered, over 500 Marines buried a couple feet, I mean literally a couple feet below the surface of this microscopic postage stamp size island out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and somehow I ended up just feeling like I wanted to write about that and use the space for that and may not have been the best way to, uh, to spread word about the book, but next thing I knew I was on this 90-hour flight out to this <laughs> nowhere island. And, uh, and as, when I was out there, I was just thinking, like, man, I guess I'm not done with this material. You know, mo for the most part, my, my trajectory as a magazine writer for a lot of years has been I just kind of go from one subject to another. There's little periods where I fixate on something, but, um, but generally speaking, my, my subject matter changes pretty radically from story to story. And in this case, I feel like I'm still, you know, and that story came out a couple weeks after the, the book's release, and Within days of that, I was all enmeshed in this other recovery operation that's been taking place out in the China Burma India theater. Fascinating case, at least to me. Uh, I finally decided I don't think I'm going to write about that. I need to write about like a comedian living in a warm climate. <laughs> <laughs> Give yourself a break. Yeah, something so, a little lighter. So, but do you think that you don't have much of a choice that you're going to stay on this topic? I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because you are like a true generalist. I mean, you've written about all kinds. Generalist is a nice way of saying dilettante, professional dilettante. <laughs> I have no, um, you know, I have no beat and I have no area of expertise, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, I'll come back to it for sure. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm really drawn to the experience that the families have um, and trying to make people aware of it. What was your sense of their experience of the book? It's been, it's been wild. I mean, it's kind of awkward to say this in a public setting, um, it's a safe I hope, space. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> hope it doesn't come off wrong. But the, the, it was the, the coolest thing that's happened to me with this book, none, way beyond any of the other stuff, the lists or whatever, is that the the people in the book, the sub, the characters, the subjects, whatever you want to call, they all got together, and and they 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 rented out this space and they all flew into New York and they threw a book party for me and it was like just this closed community of people who were in the book. And, uh, God, that was great. You oh, know? That's amazing. I felt like I had done the thing. That's when I felt like I had done the thing I wanted to do. I'd given them the voice that we, that we wanted them to have, you know.
and conveyed it in a way that meant something to them. You're, you're trying to get me all broken up, and it's working. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, congratulations on the book. I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. We don't have to talk about it anymore. All right. Uh, so you and I have talked on the phone, and I've read your stuff for a long time. And, uh, you know, I was looking back and trying to, you know, re-familiarize re- myself with it before. Uh, we talked today, and, um, and then, but I never met you before. And then I met you at the airport today. And you're like a, you're, you're a young man. Well, thank you. Say it again. Yeah, you're a young man. I was not expecting uh, such a young man. And, here, and here's why. Uh, you've been writing for magazines for a really long time. And you've been writing, doing journalism for even longer. I found an article in, in my research um, from the Baltimore Sun from 1992 with uh, your byline. And it was about um, the uh, booming troll trend. A lot of uh, people buying trolls in Baltimore in 1992. Uh, you had a pretty awesome lead. Can I tell you what the lead was? Do you remember it? I do, uh, yes, I do. You do? For many parents, it's a troll down memory lane. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, I apologize uh, for that. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's fair. What were you, like 12 when you wrote that story? How, like, 1992, wasn't it? I, I, this is all I've ever done, man. I started... Uh, I started writing for The Sun. I, was, I got the job this summer. I was 16. And I, I didn't attend my last year of high school. They gave me credit for it. Every uh, time we, we do these live podcasts at universities, the first one is like, uh, what you want to do is get a journalism job when you're 16. <laughs> <laughs> so helpful, Will. Um, okay, seriously, wait. You skipped your senior year of high school and I didn't became skip, a journalist? I didn't skip it. I mean, you're like the Doogie Hauser of journalism? <laughs> It was, uh, I, I just had other things I enjoyed more, um, so I just didn't go. Um, <laughs> I didn't have any permission for that. It was weird, though. Once in a while, I would show up. Um, I was only supposed to have a couple of classes. I was supposed to work at the Sun, the Baltimore Sun, in the morning um, in this kind of work-study thing, which I think I was supposed to be like a gopher and, and get coffee and stuff. How did, you, how did you get that? Through, through a program at the school, work-study program at the school, okay. um, and I was already doing the newspaper for the school and everything. Um, and the Sun uh, was undergoing some real stressful changes at that time. Um, there was the morning sun and the evening sun, and then uh, the <laughs> Wait, evening sun folded. You were ready for newspapers when they were still doing the evening editions? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're not even doing a morning I'll tell you, Will is actually a young man. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they folded the evening paper where I was working, and, um, and, and at the same time they offered this buyout where anybody could get a year's salary if they would just leave. <laughs> And so everybody left. And they were like, fuck. Where's that intern? All we have is that 16-year-old. Yeah. Exactly. Put him on the troll beat. Exactly. Next thing I know, I'm like wandering around town writing stories about all sorts of random shit, man. Like one guy who collected underpants and sent him to Russia. And like were you assigned that story or was that uh... I found that one. Uh, that's my actual beat. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was, and then I got a job, I, I sort of parlayed that into, um, there was a weekly paper that I really liked, and I went to them and, and asked them if they wanted, if they needed a youth editor, and they said, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I started going there uh, in the afternoons after I would file whatever story I'd written for The Sun, I'd go over to this other you know, weekly newspaper, and I, I created a page for, for youth news promptly assigned myself a column with my own picture at the top, uh, <laughs> opining, you know, didactically on things about which I knew nothing. 
uh, and that ran well, every did, week. Do you remember the name of the column? Did you did it have a name? It was just me. Yeah, me. <laughs> it was my name was in it? huge letters <laughs> and my picture grinning stupidly. No, I don't think it had a name. I don't think there was a name for it. Um, the name of the paper was the Baltimore Times. It's still published. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, going to high school suddenly seemed like really dull, you know. Um, and I was, a, I was a public school student. Um, I, I'm a product of the Baltimore City Public Schools. And, you know, to their cr great credit, like on the rare occasion when I would show up, um, and a lot of my friends are classmates from then now, and, and, uh, and my wife was a classmate then, um, you know, I'd, go, I'd show up to see them once in a while. Um, we didn't edit the newspaper from the, I was still the editor of the newspaper, but we did that from the weekly newspaper office um, after hours. So when I showed up at school, it was kind of just to hang out. Um, but the school would, they were like cool with it. You know, like they would put my uh, articles out on the bulletin board outside. Well, you were the, the youth editor of the Baltimore Times. I mean, exactly. of course they were cool What's with not it. the love? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like, uh, that sounds like a pretty awesome way to spend your senior year of high school. It was. It was super fun. And then I, then I, I applied to colleges and I got into, into the, I only applied to one actually, and I, I got into it and I didn't last very long because it was like this little liberal arts college, Kenyon on this like, you know, hilltop surrounded by corn in the middle of Ohio. And I was coming from like downtown Baltimore, you know. And yeah, I just didn't, you know, college seemed just as How long did you last? Day. Well, they threw me out after about three months. Really? Yeah, I was a, I was a problem, I suppose. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so you, uh, you, you go to Kenya and get kicked out in three months, which, like, I went to one of those schools. It's hard to get kicked out in three months. You got to work pretty hard. Um, and then you go back, and then what happens, man? How, how, and then, what, like, uh, six months later, you're writing for Esquire? How does that happen? Well, I mean, yeah, you know, so then I went out to, I, I got on a Greyhound bus and just kind of rambled around for a while. But wherever I would go, I would try to write. So, you know, like I got off the bus in Albuquerque and turned up at the Albuquerque Tribune office and showed them some clips from the sun and, you know, did some writing for them. And, and then I was writing for an outdoor sports magazine there called Zia Sports and, you know, doing some mountaineering and things like that and writing about it. Um, and I somehow ended up back in Baltimore at Baltimore Magazine. And, and it was from there that I made the move to, to Esquire. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's the Foghorn. Foghorn, in case you don't know, is a new short fiction magazine for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch. They give you four stories a month, 12 issues a year from exciting Hollywood writers and new voices. Uh, the Foghorn's really based around two ideas. One, modern readers don't need an endless stream of stories. They want a limited set. The Foghorn gives you four great reads every month. Two, great writing deserves to be paid. So for $3.99 a month, that's just $1 a story, you're going to get curated short stories to devour on the subway, in bed, or anywhere in between. Your subscription helps the Foghorn pay 1000 bucks for every published story. They're putting money in the pockets of awesome new writers. They also donate 5% of the net proceeds to 826 LA. That's a nonprofit organization. You know them. They're dedicated to supporting students with their creative and expository writing skills. They help teachers inspire students to write. It's a fantastic cause. Foghorn supports it. So go download their free app. You're going to get a special Valentine's Day issue for free. There's a seven-day free trial. Check it out. Go read some stuff. Visit thefoghornmagazine.com slash longform. That's thefoghornmagazine.com slash longform. Go 
Go download the app, go subscribe, get some quality short fiction delivered right to your device. Okay, back to me and Will. What did editors make of you? I mean, you're like 19, kicked out of college, showing up in Albuquerque and saying, let me write something for you. How, how did you convince people to go for that? I gave him a headlock and I gave him a <laughs> noogie. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the clips weren't very impressive. I look back at them and it's, you know, cringe-inducing. Um, so were you were you cocky about them then? I guess I was. I was. I, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, I definitely was not shy about bringing them out and showing them, which I would now rather die than show them <laughs> to anyone. Um, but the but 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 the other thing is, you know, even back then the newspaper industry was in a state of crisis, and so if somebody shows up and they appear to maybe have the capacity to deliver a, a fully formed article. And they don't really want any money or anything for it, or not a lot. Um, then, then there's a home for that person. Right. That person may be the enemy of paid journalists everywhere, um, but you can build up a portfolio doing it. Did you have at that point when you're kind of traveling around, and I guess when you went back to Baltimore, like, did you have a goal of where you wanted to get to? Did you know you wanted to be writing for those big magazines? Yeah, from yeah. the start. Damn right. Yeah, I can remember as a kid, man, like a little kid reading Rolling Stone, I used to have them stacked up all over the place in my room, you know, the, the Hunter Thompson stuff and the P.J. O'Rourke stuff and, you know, eventually the Mike Sager stuff just swept me off my feet, uh, that was later, but, um, yeah, holy shit, like all I ever really wanted to do, I've, I have worshipped at, the, at what we now call long form and, you know, 50 years ago we called it new journalism, which is a particularly strange choice since that's what William Randolph Hearst called yellow journalism. <laughs> but, but, you know, we've had a lot of names. I, I personally like long form um, over time, but way before it was called that, that's what I liked. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it when I saw it, <laughs> whatever that quote is. Uh, and, and that's what I wanted to do, man. That's what I always wanted to do ever since I first saw it. And so I tried to do that with, with newspaper articles to the extent that I could. Um, well, there was a there was a time when newspaper articles tried to run that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it happens a lot less now, I think. But yeah. you know, there it was it, it was a slightly different voice, but that was a thing. Yeah, you know, that was a that was a course. You could be a you know Sunday features writer. Yep, and I think what I've now come to believe is that uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. But what else is new? <laughs> is that when newspapers, including the place where I work now, the Times, when newspaper writers try to do long form they botch it up a lot of the time. Um, and it's because, it's not that they couldn't learn how to do it or don't already know how to do it, I think. I think it has to do with habits, right? I mean, the first rule of the, doing the kind of long form writing that, that I like to read is bury the fucking lead, you know? And that's the first thing they teach you not to do in newspapers. And so I am not at all prepared to write another newspaper article. I'm not in shape for it. I've been yeah. training for the wrong event. And I think that when you know, the Times all of a sudden decides they want to beef out their long form, you know, in the paper or online only or something, um, and they bring to bear a bunch of newspaper writers, it's like you've got the wrong team out you know, on the field, you know. Um, and again, I'm probably getting myself in big trouble for saying that, but I think it's a really important thing to, to recognize that there's a different art form and that um, you can't just, you know, throw down your French horn and pick up the classical guitar and start playing flamenco. You know, you have to train for that shit. And, and so I, I, I think, you know, even back in the day when there was more of the 
uh, sort of feature kind of writing in the newspapers, it tended to still be newspaper writing that just had a little more um, voice. Mm -hmm. But it still it wasn't structure. Structurally, to me, structure is what underlies this form that we love, you know? It's how the story is told. Um, it's also the aspect of the interior story that's, that's generally, I think, executed better. Um, but that's because the structure allows for it. Um, so I'm getting boring now. But no, no, no. Well, I'm interested in how that evolved for you. I mean, you know, so how old were you when you wrote the, started writing for Esquire? How did that? I got hired at Esquire when I was 21. Eat that. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> you got started Esquire when you were 21. And at that point, were you in shape? Like, were you, did you know what you were doing? Or were you handing, like, crazy messes in to your editor and hoping it worked? Like, how did, how did you? I'm sure it was terrible. Um, actually, no, I guess I was 22. Uh, it, it was, it was, a, it was, I was writing for a magazine. I was writing for Baltimore Magazine. Yeah. Um, and I was reading Esquire and GQ a lot. And so I had some sense of what I hoped to be doing. I was reading Details was really good back then, too. Um, You're going to get yourself in more trouble. Yeah. I, I really, I still feel like you could go back. I bet that stuff holds up better than most people. Yeah, yeah, I think know. that's true. I mean, back when there, it was more essayistic. And, um, but, the, um, but so I was really, I was an avid consumer of that stuff. Um, and, uh, and so I had some sense of what I wanted to do. I just didn't have the tools to do it yet. And, and uh and, you know, Andy Ward at, at Esquire is one of the two or three greatest magazine editors of our time. I mean, another great podcast. Um, he just had faith, man. Like, he would just send me out to do these things that uh, there, was, there was no formal pitch process for it. And if there had been, it would have been disastrous because I didn't know what the story was yet. Um, and he would help me kind of find it. He's amazing at... at uh, He's always, he's always ready to talk to you on the phone and, and help you figure out what the hell you just saw and why it matters. And uh, I learned so, so much from that guy. I mean, from him, he and Joel Lovell have been the two most significant forces in shaping my work by far. What were the kind of stories when you were 22, 23, writing for Esquire that appealed to you? What, 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 were, the, what were you looking for in a story? I didn't... I, I didn't um, my stories were, they were, they, everyone was completely different. The first one I did for Esquire um, was about a, a town here in Pennsylvania called Centralia uh, that had caught on fire in, in, a, in a dump fire in 1962, this, this seam of coal underground um, that had been previously mined but whose walls still contained coal um, caught on fire, um, and then they couldn't put it out. And so, you know, a bunch of decades went by where it was smoldering underground and the smoke was billowing up through the streets and they had to evacuate the town. And this last sort of nucleus of maybe a dozen neighbors remained by the time I got to it. And, and, and they were adamant. They weren't going anywhere. Their homes had been condemned and they just didn't give a damn. And the state could go screw off. The state had, you know, was their, their greatest enemy. But what had, what had happened, what became interesting to me in the story, so I was interested because the fucking town was on fire, right? But when I got out there... <laughs> I figured out that what was actually much more interesting to me was this interior story about how these people had actually, through the lens that, that they experienced, they, they saw the town getting better and better. This, the town had, the people who remained had come together as a community. There was, they, they had formed a little town council. Um, everybody had a voice, everybody had a vote. They did everything together. It was this little utopian thing because they had an enemy, right? right? They were all you know, organized against the enemy. 
And, uh, and they were super happy. They really were happy. I was there for months and it was just like great. You know, sometimes they bickered, but they basically got along. And so the story became about home and it became about how, you know, home sort of transcends um, conditions. It, it's a sense inside rather than a physical, you know, set of coordinates. And, um, and, and the, you know, the, the piece ended up sort of alternating between sections that, that sort of brought forward this uh, subtle narrative about how, how, the, how the people felt the town had improved. You know, it's nice to have empty lots full of grass instead of more neighbors to compete with for parking and things. And then the other course was how they'd ended up there scientifically right. interested in the science. Yeah, I mean, all of your stories sort of have this, uh, or not all of them, but a lot of them have this uh, quite artfully, like, scientific bent woven into them. I'm interested in, in what reporting that was like at 22 or 23. Like, did being that young help you? Was there, were there advantages in that? I mean, generally speaking, it was a disadvantage to show up places um, because, I mean, I used to have one guy, this was when I was at Baltimore Magazine, this lawyer just walked into the room at his office where I had come to interview him and took a look at me and said something really rude and just left. I mean, he was just like, he was like, no fucking way, I'm not talking to a kid. And he left, you know. And uh, so things like that happened in a more subtle form a lot where mm -hmm. I could see the you know, I could see the shift in how seriously they expected, uh, or how serious they expected the, 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 the process to be. You know, when, yeah. when the guy who showed up was too young, they, they just suddenly saw it as, a, as, a, as this laughable joke. Uh, but, um, but I think that, you know, there were certain advantages that were more sort of pragmatic, logistical advantages. Like, for years, uh, I lived in a one-room apartment with a broken window, and the only furniture, well, there was a tent that I slept in. And then I had a center block and a cardboard box. And I unfolded this really primitive early laptop onto the cardboard box and sat on the center block. And that was my desk. And I just didn't give, I didn't care, man. Like, you know, I didn't have a family or, you know. And yeah. so that was, you know, you can get by on a lot less dough when you don't have anything you want to buy. Does that mean you got to uh, sort of take longer with stories? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't go that long as a um, proper freelancer. Um, what happened was I did some stories for Esquire and some stories for Details and Rolling Stone, all in, that, all in a big bunch. Mm. Um, and Rolling Stone made me a contract offer. Um, after, I think, my first story or second story for them, they made me a contract offer. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know, like, contract writers are still freelancers, but... Um, you, have like a, you have like a fixed number of words or stories that you produce every year, and then you have an amount of money that that's worth to the magazine, but then the, the total amount is broken up into usually monthly payments, so it's a much more steady gig, even though you're still technically a freelancer and you still work from home in your underpants. Um, and, and, uh, <laughs> Must and have so, kind of felt like you hit the lottery. Yeah, it was great, except I didn't want to work for Rolling Stone. Um, I mean, I liked, I liked the stuff I was doing for Rolling Stone, but I had found Andy Ward. Um, and I was, I had this like real heart to heart with the guy and I was just like, I know that Granger hasn't brought on a new writer in forever and I'm definitely not the guy who's earned his stripes around here, but I, it fucking breaks my heart to think I'm not going to be able to write for you because definitely if you take the contract with Rolling Stone, you're not going to be writing for Esquire. And so he was like, well, how much is it? You know, how much are they offering you? And I told him and he went to Granger and they worked it out and they, they made me the same well, not a penny more. <laughs> they were like, if you really want to come here and not there, then you'll do it for the same money. And I did, man. And I was, I never regretted it. And, and I wrote still uh, for Rolling Stone again after that. But um, 
but, but my, uh, my, my home was at Esquire for years. Reading back through that Esquire stuff, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of voice. It, they, the stories read differently than the stuff that you've been doing lately, I would say, pretty distinctly. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Talk about that. I mean, my, my tastes have changed. Yeah. So I'm, I'm less drawn to things that are, that are super voicey uh, like that, too. I think, for, I think for a lot of people, including me, um, there, there's a, when, you're, when you're sort of in your first five or ten years of discovering this long-form medium, um, it's so exciting to see these things that are breaking all the barriers of voice and doing, just totally exploding the form um, that, that it becomes almost, in, it can become almost an end unto itself. And I was really excited about doing, you know, like I wrote this piece about this guy who lived by himself in a trailer park out in Arizona, and there's probably not one correctly spelled word in the whole story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and I had such fun working on it and trying to write in that voice. Um, it's one of, of a few pieces from that period that I'm not, you know, that, that, that I, I, think, I think it possibly holds up. Um, it's, uh, but I, I would never do it now um, I, because I've, I've found... I don't want to denigrate anybody who still still loves that stuff either. It just I've my tastes have changed. I've found a, a, a greater interest in a subtler um, presentation for the most part. Um, and so I know that that for me, if I had read the stuff that I wrote then and the stuff I wrote now, if I somehow was able to read that with someone else's name on it um, when I was 25. I would have definitely thought that the earlier stuff was done by a more gifted writer. Um, and I bet a lot of people would actually feel, feel the same way. Um, but, but, and in some sense, it shows your chops. It, it's, a lot, it's a lot. The degree of difficulty on a sentence-by-sentence level is, is certainly higher when mm-hmm. you're writing in these really voicey pieces. Really? I think so, yeah. Because um, it's much harder to find a tone that will work for all the different kinds of material if, if that tone is really eccentric. How much of that is about story choice? Like that, the story in Arizona is about a guy that you met while driving cross country. Right. And, you know, it's a crazy thing he does. He lives in like the hottest place you can possibly imagine. Right. Um, it is not, it requires uh, a leap of faith, right? That's not a story that would normally yeah. be in a magazine. Right. It's a lot of like crazy people doing crazy things. Right, right. And I, I, I wonder how story choice informs that voice stuff, like whether your tastes have to change in the kind of stories you want to tell in addition to how you want to tell them. Because I, I don't think the like super straight story about the guy in Arizona quite plays. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, you would, you would have to be, yeah, you would have to tell the story in a different way. And let, let me be clear, too. I, I, I've, I've never bought into a lot of what ends up getting... Uh, getting folded into the straighter story. Like, I hate the nut graph. Yeah. I despise the fucking nut graph. And I think it's a joke. I think it's like a cop-out. Um, you know, this, it, the story probably should be about something larger than itself. But if you have to tell people what that is, you've failed from the beginning. <laughs> you know, like, if they can't find it, then you didn't put it there, and you shouldn't be beating them over the head with it. But anyway. <laughs> well, how do you think about I think uh, sometimes I've heard people defend the nut graph as like a way to convince people to keep reading or why right. they're reading or the value of what they're reading. Right. Do you not feel a pressure to sort None. of keep people going? None. I mean, so I feel, I feel a pressure. I want it to be interesting. Yeah. But I feel no pressure to tell them, like, here are the seven reasons why you're reading. They should be reading because it's enjoyable, you know, and that's the only reason that they need. And if it's not enjoyable, then I'm not doing my job. Um, 
you know, I, I heard something that Michael Lewis said one time where he said, every time I really go wrong, it's because I, I'm not trying to entertain the reader. I think, you know, we shouldn't have a pejorative connotation with entertainment. I mean, we I totally are, agree. it better be enjoyable to read it. There's so many other things to do. Even, you know, even if you're the, the lucky writer who's got a captive audience, you know, in the toilet where the, where the reader is like not can't go anywhere, right. there's still another magazine and there's another article and yours, yours better be fun to read. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, we, you know, we, I've said that this before on the show, but we totally see that in the consumption of long form on the site and in the app. People use it at nights and on the weekends. That's when people read this stuff. It's the same time they go see a movie. It's yeah. the same idea, I yeah, think. Yeah. Uh, and you do have to kind of like uh, respect that need for entertainment, I think. Absolutely. Yep. Um, okay. So Esquire, you're writing these, these uh, crazy voicey stories and then uh, Andy goes to GQ and I assume you, you went with him? Yeah, basically the same day. So the, the crazy through line of this podcast, just like the yeah. Andy Ward uh, coaching tree. Um, <laughs> but at GQ... You started writing about politics. Very briefly. Yeah, well, I guess for a couple of years. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of stories in that archive. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know what happened, man. The, the Bush administration came in, and then 9-11 happened, and all of the evil in the world descended. And uh, I, I really opposed what they were doing. And so not all of my stories were, you know, these sort of hostile takedowns or something like that. In fact, I don't think too many of them were. There was a point where I wrote a big, long screed about how Dick Cheney should be impeached, <laughs> which I stand by. Uh, even now, we should find a way to have done it. Um, but, but, uh, but, but there were also cases where I felt like some important distinctions needed to be made between you know, who were the people within the Bush administration who um, were more on the side of the angels and what was being done to them. Like, like you know, Colin Powell, in spite, in spite of the February 5, 2003 speech of the United Nations, was basically trying to do right by the American public, I thought, and, uh, and got screwed. And I actually thought that... that Paul Wolfowitz was, uh, you know, made into people's uh, devil, but was this sort of misguided Wilsonian optimist. Um, and so I, wa- I wanted to write about those kinds of guys too. But it was always in the context of, you know, here's this really what I still think of as a dark hour in American history. We got involved in some wars that almost everybody now believes were a mistake, and uh, and and did uh, and did some really crummy things to our civil liberties that we're still reckoning with. Um, and I just wanted to, to try to find a way in to write about that that still, that still preferenced character and story. So that was your impetus to go start doing the politics stuff I that wasn't assigned? I think it was. I might be just making that up retroactively. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, I felt at the time like this was something I needed to write about. You did a lot of profiles for a couple of years there in, in D.C. Was it, um, was it difficult to make that transition? Did you, like, did you get acclimated to Washington quickly? Never. I never did. And I, and I would never go back. I don't think I'd ever go back and do it again. You know, the problem with writing about Washington is that everybody is lying to you all the time. And so the way that you do an interview is totally different from most other stories. You know, if you, don't have, if you haven't sort of gamed out how you're going to react to all the lies and bullshit, and if you have to try to anticipate, what are they going to say when I ask this question? Oh, here's the lie they usually say. And then how are you going to respond? And then you end up with this flow chart. Oh, it's, it's, like, it's like preparing for a deposition or right. something. It's totally different from actually lie. asking people a question. Right. Lie management as opposed to reporting. Exactly, yeah. And damage control, right, for your article. Yeah. Um, and then there's no setting either. I mean, of all the sterile, hideous places in, in the world, the inside of the Capitol is probably pretty high up there. Um, you know, nothing, there's nothing to describe, you know, there's nothing, there's just like all this white marble and big, 
you know, echoing hallways with people walking down them lying. And so, um, <laughs> in, in bad suits. And so, you know, there's really, there's, there's no story there except for the, except for the ideas. And, and I, I am impressed by people who can do that well. I don't think I was one of them particularly. And um, it's not something I aspire to do. I'm always looking for setting and character, you know, in a story. It seems remarkable to me that, that you've been able to, from such a young age, basically follow your interests and obsessions and uh, move from one topic to another. Uh, you've been at the Times for how long now? Uh, what year is it now? 14? 14. Uh, three years. Three years. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about a couple of the pieces that you've, you've done there, but I guess um, it maybe it would be uh, worthwhile for the students in the audience to hear a little bit about how you pick stories and how that's evolved and, and um, how you know that there's a good story there, how you know to sort of trust your gut. I'm, I'm just interested in how that, uh, that generalist slash dilettante thing happens in practice. I think, you know, one of the things that comes from, I guarantee that I'm the least educated person in this room, and I'm totally good with that. And it, that's, the, that's the way it always feels as a reporter, or should feel. I mean, I think if you're doing the job right, you should constantly be surrounded by people who know much more about the subject at hand than you ever will, right? There's just no point interviewing people who know less than you. And so, you know, for me, the, the experience of being a journalist um, has been uh, a way to get an education through other means, right? Like the extension of education by other means, as, as has been said about politics and war. Um, but, but, but so when I, you know, when I got interested in those, in this, in these guys who were, you know, leading us in this very questionable direction in 2003, four, five, and I wanted to know more about them, I could go back and see what was their history. Well, a lot of them were in the, in the, you know, Nixon and Ford administration. So I would like go ask Gerald Ford what he remembered about him or Henry Kissinger or somebody. It was just like this wonderful way to get a sense of how, you know, the late sixties and early seventies unfolded in America um, through pretty good sources, or sources pretty close to the decision-making apparatus of the time. Um, and, and yet, at, e- at each step, I'd be asking, you know, questions um, that probably betrayed my ignorance time and time and again. And, um, and, and I, I just don't care, you know. Like, I, I'm, I'm so used to being the person who knows the least about the subject that I've become inured to it. Um, and, and, and so that makes it easier then to move from subject to subject as well. Mm-hmm. Because the temptation of having a beat is, you know, oh, well, I know everything about baseball now. So when I show up and interview somebody about this, uh, you know, A-Rod stuff or whatever, like I have all the same reference points. Well, I don't. I'm right. not going to write about that. I, I don't care about that. But, um, but Does that help you know when you've got the story? Yeah, I think it does because you're, you're just, you're asking yourself, like, you know, what's interesting about this um, from without, you know, what, what's interesting about this? It, it's it's just it's interesting just as a story, so that it's not about the sort of arcane minutia that people in in this you know very cloistered environment um, have overanalyzed to death. It's it's what's interesting about this. Um, what's interesting about being alive in the Pentagon during these wars, or what's what's interesting, you know, about being. Um, the guy who's responsible for spreading positive stories about nuclear power, you know, at, at Three Mile Island, you know, j- just without caring so much about um, about trying to sound smart or trying to become enmeshed in this, you know, ecosystem in which everybody's, you know, really deeply, deeply versed in the material. 
Um, the risk, of course, is that you'll make an ass of yourself, and I probably do um, sometimes. I'm sure I write things that are incredibly naive sometimes. Um, but I find it enjoyable to do that. <laughs> so fuck everybody else. Um, <laughs> how, does, uh, how does the James Terrell story fit in that? The James Terrell story was uh, something I wanted to write. James Terrell's an artist. He's a, he, his, his material, rather than paint or, or steel or whatever, is, is light. So he makes these rooms and he blasts light into them from different angles. And I, um, I first discovered him here in Pittsburgh um, on a visit to the mattress factory a long, long time ago. Um, and uh, there's a piece there, there are a few pieces there. Uh, one's called Pleiades, there's one called Catso Red. Um, there's some great, they have some great, they're great supporters of, of Terrell in this little tiny uh, off the beaten path uh, museum in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and, and my wife is an art historian and she's constantly dragging me around to museums that I don't want to go to. And then whenever there's a Terrell, even if it's not in that museum, if it's in that town, I'll typically go find it and spend the whole day just kind of gazing into the light. Um, and, uh, and so I'd wanted to do a story about Terrell for a long time and reached out to him when I was at, at GQ and, and got the cold shoulder. Um, and so then I was finished the book, uh, which was a, a, a real you know, obsessive undertaking um, sort of took me out of my body for a period of time. You know, it requires such focus uh, to do something like that. And, um, and, and, and Terrell's big life work is this, uh, this crater out in Arizona that he's tunneled into to create chambers that trap natural celestial light from the sun and the moon, but then also from different stars. Um, and when you go into these places in the middle of the night in this, in this volcano that he's whose caldera he's carved into, um, you get these same kinds of effects that you'll find in museums. The light blasts into the room and it glows and it feels all weird and creepy and you get this body high. And, um, and so that seemed, it, it seemed like a good time having just finished the book to write the obsession story yeah. that I wanted to write. And, uh, and I contacted him again and uh, we're, we're like, we're, you know, I wrote that story about him and I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks. And then he called me up and he was like, Will, it's James, do you want to go sailing? <laughs> and so we just like sailed together now. We still never talked about the story. Really? I, I don't know if he liked it or not, but, but well, we, we got along. He probably liked it, man, if he took you on his boat. <laughs> <laughs> we sailed, that was this summer, man, we sailed from his house way out on the eastern shore of Maryland all the way up to uh, Marblehead, which is on the border of Massachusetts. Sure. It took, a, yeah, it took us five days, and he like fell and broke his tooth, and it was just like <laughs> a wonderful, crazy thing that we did together, and I love the guy. Um, there's, a, there's a thing that uh, in that moment when you, were, when you were at the crater that I wanted to ask you about. This might be a, a somewhat weird question, but um, who's the guy from the Guggenheim? Nat Trotman was the yeah. You you mentioned in, in like sort of as the aside that Nat Trotman is really well spoken, mm-hmm. which is um, a way that you de- like I you describe a bunch of people actually in your stories. Do I really? Yeah, I had no idea. it's a weird thing. I'll never man. do it again. <laughs> Probably not. Sorry, but <laughs> it's the early onset Alzheimer's. <laughs> it just seems like a, it seems like something you're interested in. Pe- I mean, people who speak eloquently. Well, yeah, you which know, now, now has me very self conscious. Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you know, you go around interviewing people for, for 25 years or whatever it is now for me, and, and uh, it's just a rare and wonderful thing, and, yeah. and I, guess, I, guess it, I guess I feel the need to remark upon it when I see it. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's so few people who can tell you what they think extemporaneously. Um, I can't. Oh, you've done and a great job. For, for me, it's, uh, you know, I think, I, think, I think 
it's a, it's a, the weird thing is is uh, is what is when someone can uh, can can write well and speak well. I think it's pretty rare. I think Hitchens maybe is one, but they're they're pretty few. And I, and I think that's not coincidence. I think it has to do with you know one of the reasons that you uh, work hard at and try to excel to whatever extent you can at writing is because you can't uh, just speak off the cuff and say what you meant to say. Um, and so, and I know that's the way it is for me. So I've tried to build up this other muscle that can compensate for the great weaknesses of being a bad speaker. Um, and, and, and then when I'm out there in the world and I encounter somebody who's got this other, the other thing, the thing that I'm compensating for not having, um, it's striking to me. It's, an, it's, a, it's a talent that, it, that and, and the ability to sing are things that just, it's like this magical ability some people have. Um, last night before uh, we flew to Pittsburgh, I very stupidly read the uh, Air France 447 story, uh, and we hit turbulence this morning on the flight, and uh, I'm not sure I led on, but I was a complete wreck. I was a, I was a total mess. And that story is so spooky, man. It really, uh, it really, it really uh, is pretty unnerving to read. And it, if, for anyone who doesn't know, it's, a, it's about Air France Flight 447, which basically disappeared, and and um, it obviously has all these connections to your book. Yeah, um, and there's a long section in the story. The story, sort of like the book, becomes about the people left behind. Yeah. And I, I guess I wonder how those that story intersected with the book for you, and and how um, reporting it and talking to those people. Uh, how that sort of connected to, to the people you were talking to for the book? It, it, it connected in huge ways. I mean, not, and not just in that, not just with regard to the people, uh, to the survivors, um, but also the technology of the search right. was stuff. I mean, all the machinery they were using was familiar to me. Um, uh, so, so, for example, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution was down in Brazil um, sending out these incredibly advanced subs um, to scour the floor, robotic subs to, to scour the ocean floor in search of the wreckage of this plane that just dropped out of the sky in the middle of the you know, South Atlantic Ocean. Um, and and uh, you know, I, I knew that side scan sonar technology that they were using. I knew that stuff because I had been out on boats running those subs or much smaller versions of those subs um, for, for book research. And so it was a, it was a, it was a story that um, sort of brought home to me that the, that the book I was writing um, was the, the, the kind of grief that I was exploring and the, the kind of uh, obsession um, of, of people who search for these things um, or, or, or the, the, the hunger to make right um, what's gone wrong um, by the search team for that Air France fight and for these uh, missing airplanes from World War II, um, that, 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 that those kinds of passions are broader than the story that I was ostensibly writing about um, in, in my book and that the book was in fact um, you know, a, a drug delivery system to, to get at those experiences um, and, and to, to try to explore those, those twin feelings, the one of loss, the one of that specific form of grief, and the other of that um, specific um, hunger for answers. Um, and, the, and, and, and so when I was working on that story, it, 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 I was constantly thinking about the book and about how you know, these experiences are part of um, what it is to be alive, but they're not, I mean, they're part of the sort of 
the, the range of emotions that, that can happen with some regularity in, in human experience, but they're not, they're not things that we talk about that much. Yeah. Do you think that you want to keep talking about them, want to keep writing about them? I don't want to talk to them about, about them with you. <laughs> uh, no, I, mean, I, I don't, no, I don't, I don't know why uh, I continue to write about them. No, I don't. Um, I, I, I am aware that I must, um, I must still have something else I want to say, but I haven't figured out what it is yet. Um, it's, it's not that, uh, you know, for me, it's not that, um, that I, that I am not happy with the book or wasn't happy with the Air France story. Um, I feel like they both do what I intended them to do. Um, but this, this, uh, I find myself continuing to think about this problem and, and this, this sort of, uh, this particular kind of tragedy. And, and I find myself wanting to bring it to the fore as much as possible. These people feel abandoned, man. Yeah. I go around and do these readings and stuff and subject people to my uh, book. And, uh, you know, afterwards, constantly, people come up to me and they say, my great uncle went down, my family's never been the same. Uh, we've been searching for answers. Can you help me figure out how to research at the National Archives? Can you put me in touch? Are there searchers in Papua New Guinea? Are there search teams in Burma? You know, are there search teams in Laos? And I, and I can try to help them find, you know, so it's, it's, become, a, it's become something that's, you know, really important to me. And I don't, I don't feel consciously the need to keep writing about it, but um, I do still care about it, and it ends up manifesting itself in, like, you know, I just keep writing, I just keep writing about it whether I consciously want to or not. Um, I think, you know, the details are different, but a lot of that sounds like what the people who are doing the searching would say as well. Mm -hmm. It's just something that they can't quite give up. Yeah, they're storytellers. For sure, you know that's what they're doing. Is they're trying to tell us, they're trying to find the answer to the story. Uh, well, we'll ha we'll have you back on when you write the next one. Okay, great. Thanks, Will. Okay, thank you guys for coming. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern this week, Sarah Button. Thanks very much to our sponsors, Tiny Letter and the Foghorn. Go read some short stories on your device. Thefoghornmagazine.com slash longform. Uh, thanks also to the University of Pittsburgh, specifically the writing department. Uh, they've been a longtime sponsor of Longform, and it's always a treat when we get to go see them. Even in January, it's nice to go see those fine folks. Uh, it is even nicer when someone like Will Hilton shows up. What a good dude. Doogie Hauser of Journalism. We'll be back next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.